Would you please pray with me? Come Holy Spirit and fill our hearts and our minds with your grace and truth as we look at this story, Lord. For some, very familiar. For others, not so much. And I pray for those of us who, we are familiar with it, that you would strip away the onion and reveal it to yourself with greater glory. For those who aren't so much, I pray that you would just help them to see you for who you are. The Messiah, whose favor is upon those who place their trust fully in him. And now, Lord, speak your words through my lips. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you so that we would declare changed lives for your glory in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I bring you greetings, ladies and gentlemen, from Bishop Jackson and the deans of the Great Lakes Diocese. I spent the week with the deans all across the diocese because, as you well know, Christianity is in trouble in our culture. And most of our churches in the Anglican Diocese aren't going to make it. They're not going to make it. They're less than 30 people. They hang out a shingle, and they say, Come, join us. Aren't we swell people? That doesn't work. It never really did. But we got to change. Because God has called us to be agents of his grace to our culture. And so the bishop invited one of his former students, James Stevenson, from Bishopton and St. Andrew's Church, belovingly called B&A Church, Bristol. Because it's a wonderful work of transforming grace there in Bristol, England. Because when James graduated from Trinity Bristol Seminary, he became the rector of both those churches, Bishopton and St. Andrews. And so what he had were two churches which were both on a downward slide. Now, St. Andrews was open to, Lord, we'll follow you wherever you take us type of folk. And so they said, okay, Lord, we'll change. So they started these mission-shaped communities led by Bishop Ron Jackson. Ron and Patty ministered there, showed them how to discern God's will, hear to speak from the Lord, go out into the community, and it started to turn around. It went from 50 people to 100 people to 150 people, and it was great. Bishopton's church, not so much. They were 20 hearty souls who liked the Christian life the way they liked it, and they weren't willing to change that much. And so their Christianity was not so much as it was throughout the week as it was just gathering on Sunday doing the stuff of the Christian church that we do in the Church of England, but it was the Church of England, not the Church for England. Until James says, in the sovereignty of God, the boiler broke. And those 20 souls had to make a decision. Are we going to cough up a million or so dollars, pounds, to fix this thing in this beautiful facade? Beautiful building. Stone, built in 1840, stained glass windows, the whole works, right? Pipe organ. Are we going to do that? And those 20 people said, we can't do that. That's right. We can't. So what are we going to do? They merged with St. Andrews. And for a few years, they 
they just worship together and they learn to do life together as a community. And not everybody from Bishopton was willing to do that, but as a few were. And because the old church is a better location, they renovated it. They all pitched in. They sold the St. Andrew's property to a non-denominational church, which really wanted it. And they, they turned this, this Gothic cathedral-type little church that seats 500 people to the side. And they surrounded the chairs more contextual to 21st century ministry. And today, my friends, they're 500 strong, doing life together because the mission of Sundays is not for Sunday merely only. Sunday's not the mission. Sunday is for the mission. And so, interesting story, they had this tremendous carol service during Advent. 2,000 people would show up. And over four years' time of doing this great carol service, they had one person come to faith in Christ. So James and the vestry canceled it and said, we're not going to do it anymore. Oh, the, the church was up in arms. We can't cancel the carol service. We've been doing it for 100 years. And he said, okay, well, we're going to redeploy the carol service to working with the little churches, they call it. That's their mission-shaped communities that we've been talking about, like our Bavon Lake group. And so the Bavon Lake group would invite their friends, for example, and they would work with other mission-shaped communities, and they would have their own carol services in different venues. Some used the church, some didn't use a church, and all of a sudden, lots of people started to come to faith in Christ. Because we need to hear the voice of God. And that's our call, henceforth, as we go forward here at Christ Church. And the bishop is going to change his visitation schedule. He's not going to go to every church every year. It's unsustainable to go all over the Great Lakes every year to every church everywhere. So the churches that are 30 below are going to get a visit once every three years. Christ Church, thank God, is going to get a visit this year. Um, and we're going to encourage those churches to join the Lord at the work he's doing around them and stop hanging up a shingle expecting the Lord to come, people to come just because you're delightful people. Because like I said, that doesn't work. And it truly never did. And so what we see in this week, as I was speaking with James, this is a wonderful missional text. Because it separates the men from the boys, if you will. The women from the girls, if you will. Because what we see in this text, truly are true believers in Christ. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4 as we continue part 2 of Jesus' homecoming. Last week we learned the priority of the Lord's day where Jesus himself honored in his Galilean ministry, always stopping on the Lord's day on the Sabbath in the synagogue because it's the Lord's idea, not ours, to cease from our work because we all need to rest one day out of seven to gather with God's people, to be encouraged by God's word, and to do acts of mercy together. It's the biblical pattern. And we learn, secondly, that the good news that Jesus has comes to those only who admit that they're spiritually impoverished. They're spiritually captive, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, right? That those who are willing to admit such. And then we saw the common reaction 
in verse 22 that how most people typically at first respond to Jesus. Remember, verse 22, where they say, And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Isn't this not Joseph's son? They liked it initially. But what these people, as we read this morning, reveal, they're, they're not, the gospel is for those who are poor in spirit, not middle class. And that's where most American professing Christians tend to try to be. They tend to try to mold Jesus into what they want him, and Jesus will have none of it. And so my friends, really what we discover is, Zach read for us, these middle class followers underneath their spirituality is a hostility to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a warning to us. What is our response to the revelation of Jesus? So what we're going to learn today is to whom the gospel comes and to how and the kind of reception it's often given. Very simple. To whom the gospel comes and the kind of reception that it's often given. So Jesus, you know, we think of Jesus as a meek and mild Jesus. My friends, he, he picks a fight here in the synagogue back home. And he takes issue with their acceptance of him. So in verse 23, he says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus is saying what they are thinking. And here's what they're thinking. If Jesus of Nazareth is a prophet, I'm Isaiah. You know, hey, why don't you do a little healing for us there, master? You know, a little heal the blind, the poor, the captives, the oppressed that you're talking about. Now the fact is, with the ministry that he had all throughout Galilee in the Gerasene region that Matthew and Mark speak of, um, they had plenty of evidence that he was who he was saying he was. Theirs is an emotional bias, as we see in our culture, right? And an irrational bias that they are not willing to lay on the table. So with that debate of evidence aside, Jesus went right to the heart of the matter, attacking their spiritual self-sufficiency, their self-righteousness, and their pride in the Nazarene synagogue. And to make his point, he uses two famous Old Testament characters, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman. The first utterly poor, and the second, utterly rich. Let's look at these folks. The first involved the prophet Elijah and the starving widow uh, of Zarephath, verses 25 and 26. But in truth, Jesus tells them, uh, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
The story is recorded in 1 Kings 17. You're well familiar with it, I'm sure. Verses 7 through 16, how Elijah encounters a woman gathering sticks to kindle a fire so she could bake a meal for her son and herself so as she could put it, we may eat of it and die. This is it. This is her last meal. And so Elijah's response is not what we would suspect. It's quite surprising. And he says to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. You know, amazingly, this Gentile woman obeys the Jewish prophet, Elijah, and his strange words, and for as long as the famine endured, she had flour and she had oil. Why did she trust Elijah? Well, if she had been like the people of Nazareth in Jesus' day, she would have demanded a miracle first. But Elijah insisted it be otherwise, and without any evidence, this Gentile woman gave her last meal to him because she realized her abject poverty and need for God's intervention. You know, if she had a barrel full of flour, she wouldn't have felt that need, right? Her blessing was that she was desperately poor and she knew it. So the application to the congregation in Nazareth is pretty obvious. If they wanted evidence that Jesus' claims to the poor, the blind, the oppressed, the captive, you know, were true, all they had to do was trust him and there would be ample evidence. But they weren't poor. They weren't blind. These were good God-fearing people. You know that when anybody says they're good, God-fearing people, they don't understand the Christian faith whatsoever because there's no one good, and they probably don't fear God. All right? But that's exactly what these people are like. And what Jesus is doing here, ladies and gentlemen, is landing a well-aimed, intended insult. He's picking a fight. Now, if the people were insulted by the widow's story, the next example brought them even greater anger. So Jesus continues. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman, as you may remember, was the commander of the Syrian army. He had leprosy. So his king sent him to Israel to be cured of his leprosy. Now, the Israelite king thought Syria was sending the commander as a pretext for war. But Elisha calmed the Israelite king, and he directed that Naaman be sent to him. And so upon Naaman's arrival, Elisha didn't even come out of the house. He sent some messengers to Naaman and said, go wash in the Jordan seven times, and he'd be cleansed. Now, Naaman was furious, because if you've ever seen the Jordan River, it's nothing more than really a large creek. And it's muddy, it's not impressive, all right? 
And he's looking at this, and he thinks to himself in this whole thing, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them to be cleaned? And so he turned away and went away in a rage. Now his servants got him to calm down. And they said, Master, if, if Elisha asked you to go and do a great thing, you would have gone and done it to be cured, right? You would have done anything like that, so why not do this humiliating and humbling thing and be cured? And he did. He humbled himself. He humiliated by getting that backwoods water creek, <laughs> and he was healed. And the folks of Nazareth at that point had heard enough. It was bad enough that they were told that they were poor and blind and oppressed and captive. But now they were told that they were less spiritual and less wise than the Gentiles. Both Naaman and the widow, and this was too, just too much. And in fact, I don't know if you caught it, the worship service never ended. They just got ticked and drove him out of the synagogue. So in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I mean, just think of it. Here he is, home for homecoming, class of 1980, all right? He grew up there. Even though they, they never dreamed that he was God, they certainly knew his character, right? They had never seen Jesus do anything wrong. He had never lied, never disobeyed. Thoughtful, winsome person, probably the most winsome person they'd ever known. And undoubtedly, he was locally famous for his acts of mercy to others. He was the most lovely being they ever encountered. But when Jesus cuts through their religious facade, they wanted to kill him. And that's exactly what we want to do. We kill the true Jesus and we mold a kind of Jesus of our own making so that it's very convenient for us. And actually, when we put that Jesus up on the shelf, that Jesus looks a lot like us. And they did all this on the Sabbath of all days. Can you imagine? And so he would have been tossed off the cliff and then stoned had he not, quote, passed through their midst. That's all Luke says. This is Monty Python-esque. It really is. I mean, imagine this, this crowd. You know, a local synagogue, probably about 100 people or so. They're all in a round. They're going to take him to the cliffs. They're going to throw him off. You know, they're going to kill him. Let's kill him. And all of a sudden, where is he? Okay? He's God. We don't know how it happened, but we just know he passed through them. And I think it's proof in the pudding of what Paul says in Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So how should we respond to this? Luke, the theologian physician, places this story at the beginning of his biography to 
show Theophilus and future readers what the gospel is, to whom it comes, and how it's received. Sometimes it comes and is received, as in verses 14 and 50, like a Galilean springtime. Great movement, great action, awesome and exciting works of God. And other times, when it comes to religious and self-righteous people, it brings a Nazarene winter. Ron Allen, who's the pastor emeritus at Heartland Anglican Church in Fort Wayne, says it this way. He said, at the dean's meeting this week, he said, you know, sometimes you preach the gospel and you can basically sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and people fall all over themselves and receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then there's sometimes you can have the greatest apologetic in defense of the gospel you ever thought and people just stone cold. Once again, let's hear the good news from Jesus' lips. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Ladies and gentlemen, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we have abundant life in this life and eternal life awaiting us, and we have his favor regardless of our performance because he sees you and I in the righteousness of his performance. But we also need to hear the warning in verse 27 of chapter 4. There were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was saved because knowing he was a leper, there was no hope for him apart from God's grace, and he trusted God. There are many lepers inside and outside of the church today, and there are many starving widows, but they don't know that they're spiritually poor. They don't realize they're captive, they're blind, they're oppressed. And they're upright, good, good parents, love their kids. But deep inside, they become furious at the thought they need God's grace. And God's grace has really made no difference in their lives whatsoever. Has it truly made a difference in mine? Am I really willing to let the Holy Spirit come into me and amend my life according to His Word, not my own agendas? Because our church and family traditions can insulate us from true faith in Jesus Christ, my friends. And we can cast Jesus out. Because those most in need of mercy and grace often know it the least. In closing, it's a great story about, a, it's a true story about a British minister at a large Anglican parish church outside of London. And as churches were being built, you had the parish as a region. It's kind of like our deanery, all right? And there's one church, which is the parish church, and all the mission churches around it. And the parish church in this particular parish was a vibrant, Bible-believing parish with lots of missions, and many of the missions were in kind of rough areas. 
But there was wonderful work that was going on in these little missions. And once a year, on the first Sunday of the year, they all came together to the parish church. They closed the doors of the parish church, of the, of the mission churches, and come to the parish church for a community um, communion service. Because really, they're only like 10 minutes away from each other. There's a church on every corner over there. You know, it just is the way it is. And so on this one particular occasion, the minister, as he's giving out communion, he's, they're all at the communion rail. I miss the communion rail, you know. And he was going down the communion rail, and he gives the communion to one of the members of his church who is a Supreme Court Justice of the British government. And next to him is a burglar, which that Supreme Court Justice, before he became a Supreme Court Justice, he was just a judge seven years earlier, had sentenced this burglar to seven years in jail. And he's now a converted believer. He's come to faith in Jesus. He's doing full-time Christian work at one of the mission churches. This is a wonderful story. So the minister, as he's coming out, as the Supreme Court Justice is coming out of church that day, he goes, wasn't it glorious? Did you see who was by me? He goes, yeah, I did see. It's a wonderful work of God's grace. And the Supreme Court Justice says, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about me. He goes, tell me more. And the Supreme Court Justice says, you see, it really isn't that surprising that the burglar received God's grace. When he left jail, he had nothing but a history of crime behind him. He had nowhere to go but up. He knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him, and he knew how much he needed help, and I had no such knowledge. You see, I was taught from my earliest infancy that my word was my bond. I was taught to be a gentleman. I was taught, read your Bible, say your prayers, go to church, get First Communion, get confirmed, and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees, was called to the bar, and I eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact I too was a sinner just like him. Reverend, it was God's grace that drew me. And it was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Jesus. And it's by God's grace I'm the greater miracle, not him. Because the greatest miracle is a transformed heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. We think the greatest miracles are the works of healing. Oh, no. The greatest miracle is Gene Sherman standing before you as a transformed person. If you don't believe me, go ask the brunette. She'll tell you. And I suspect so is many of your stories as well. Thank God. Because all who bow the knee of their heart to Jesus Christ, acknowledging their need, and their hopelessness receive eternal life. And every single one of them are miracles of God's grace. All you need is need. So let's rest in that need and come to Jesus with nothing, acknowledging that this book guides our life, not my own agenda. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this day and for your word which calls us to a vibrant relationship with you. For this is not religion. It's truth served up with great grace, 
so that we might be transformed people because you have your favor upon us, those of us who are spiritually poor. Whether we're physically poor like the widow of Zarephath or rich like Naaman was, you love us all. And yet there are so many in churches and perhaps even here today that are middle class that go on their agenda and not necessarily yours. And I pray that that day would end. And each and every one of us this morning, come Holy Spirit. We would admit our poverty, admit our captivity, admit our blindness, and admit that we're caught in oppression and place our full trust in you and that we would continually have your favor upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.